0: It is reasonable to believe that the thirtieth just of the Quran, whether it was revealed in its entirety in Mecca or not, that it forms the basis for both Islamic theological as well as ethical foundations that, at a minimum, the 30th Josephine sets down the foundational premises for everything that is to follow. One can even argue that these foundational premises must become the guiding posts for any subsequent theological or legal development in Islamic discourses. One can argue, and the argument is made in some sources, that these. Foundational principles assert the premises upon which everything else else is to be built. So that any subsequent positive legislation or particular legislation, if it will run counter to the foundational principles, must then be reconsidered. As you already saw, several examples of layers of meaning within the, the surahs or some surahs of the thirty juz, as well as alternative consistent, consistent with each other, alternative meanings, as well as straightforward. Non problematic, non layered meanings. What strikes one is that it seems quite clear that these verses and what they transmit in terms of values and premises are to be relevant regardless of the age, regardless of the context. One of the most fascinating elements of the is just is where a foundational lesson is conveyed through a specific example. In other words, you articulate a principle in our modern way, the way we'd say it in the modern age, you articulate a principle through a case study using a specific particular example in the specific contextual circumstance of the Prophet in order to set principles and premises and values that are transcendental, that are beyond the context in which they were revealed. Now, progressing systematically, in reverse order, as I said, we run immediately upon Surat Al-Masad. Surat Al-Masad, which is the Surah which talks specifically about Abu Lahab. Now, this Surah is unique and fascinating in many respects. We have an individual mentioned by name. This is uh, occurs right before So if look from the back to the front. Here the name of an individual is mentioned. The surname of an individual, the Kunya, is mentioned, Abu Lahab. And his wife as well, is specifically targeted. Now we know that normally the Qur'an, although there might be a sabab nuzul, a context that called the revelation to be, but yet the Qur'an rarely mentions the names of any of the Prophet's contemporaries. So that the names of companions themselves or surnames like Abu Bakr or Omar or, or Ali or Aisha are not identified and not mentioned specifically. Although of course some argue that well by by it, it's understood by reference that this is an individual meant or whatever, but it is it is the, the point remains that rarely does the Quran mention the name of contemporary of the Prophet ﷺ. So that's already something that stands out about the surah. And the structure is, is very simple to the surah. Tabbat yada lahabin wa Very simple, very straightforward. And it ends, there is hardly an introduction, it begins with a condemnation of Abu Lahab and ends with the condemnation of Abu Lahab's wife. Now, in sources, There is disagreement as to why this, now as you know, Abu Lahab was the Prophet's uncle, known for his animosity to Islam and he is the one after the death of the uh, Prophet's uncle, his rather sympathetic uncle, Abu Lahab becomes the head of the Hashem clan. And as the head of the Hashem clan, Abu Lahab dilutes the protection that the clan gives to the prophet in Mecca. This is long before the Hijrah. that when Hisham was at the head of the Hashem clan, at a minimum he protected his nephew from molestation. By saying, regardless of by 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 openly declaring that although I do not follow his religion, but he is under the protection of the Hashem clan anyway. Abu Lahab, who takes over at the at the head of the Hashem clan after the death of his brother, uh, dilutes the protection given to the prophet, and eventually agrees with Abu Jahl, who is killed in the Battle of Badr, uh, eventually, that he agrees with Abu Jahl that a boycott should be implemented. And, in fact, does an act of treason by sanctioning and supporting a boycott directed against the Hashem clan itself, which he is supposed to head, unless they renounce all protections to the Prophet. So in other words, Abu Lahab himself does not play a minor role in the early opposition to the Prophet, but rather plays a, a, a vehement, vehemently hostile role. And there are even reports of Abu Lahab treating the Prophet as an orphan child unkindly. Him and his wife often abusing him and um, mistreating him, in the short period of time in which he lives in their household, when when the Prophet was a child. Interestingly, I mean, now whether in fact these reports are authentic or not, we really don't know, but we we can rely on the fact that Abu Lahab was extremely hostile to the Prophet and his message. Abu Lahab is called Abu Lahab because, in fact, because of the fact that he's very good-looking, Handsome. And although some reports say that he was called Abu Lahab because his face would be red with anger most of the time, like a, a flame uh, spewing out of him, other reports say that he was called Abu Lahab because there was a, a, um, a, something, an, an attractive element about him physically, which made his face sort of shine. Wherever he goes. Early on, long before the Prophet is even bo- is born, he acquires the surname of Abu Lahab, the father of Lahab, but really his son is not called Lahab, so it is just a surname, a descriptive surname. So then, there are several elements that one thinks about. Why him? Why is Abu Lahab singled out for mention? I mean Abu Jahl is referred to in one of the surahs, and in fact it says, etc. etc. Et that in other words it's talking to him and 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 threatening him, at least in some reports, but Abu Jahl himself is not mentioned by name. Yet Abu Lahab is. And the voice and tenor of the of the, the surah is not compromising. It does not say if he does not seize, we will do it X, Y, and Z. It does not, it is not a conditional threat. It is not a, a threat at all. It's a promise. It's a judgment. It doesn't say Unless Abu Lahab changes and reforms, he will be condemned. It says Abu Lahab is condemned. Perhaps one would suspect that Abu Lahab is condemned because of the fact that he was the Prophet's uncle and as such owed him certain duties that accrue because of the blood relationship. And by failing to act upon these blood relations, he has become the subject of special condemnation. In other words, his vice is not only to disbelieve and to arrogantly become hostile to the truth, but furthermore, that as a blood relation, as a relative, he did not observe the most basic principles of decency that one relative owes to the other simply by virtue of them being relatives. And in fact, several commentators point our attention to the fact that when a person is betrayed, when a person is oppressed that is bad. But when the betrayer and the oppressor is your own flesh and blood that makes the crime even so much worse. So as an uncle as an uncle, he should have. Ibn al-Abbas, the other uncle who converts when Medina is conquered, eventually, remains non-Muslim for a very long time, even to the point that when Medina is actually conquered. But Ibn al-Abbas, the difference between him and Abu Lahab is that he does not molest his nephew. Ibn al-Abbas is not a Muslim, but Ibn al-Abbas does not go out of his way to fight. In other words, and we will see in one of the reports this played out. In other words, when you are in a relationship with another human being, whether you're a father, you're a mother, you're a sister, you're a brother, you're an uncle, you're a nephew, you're a wife, you're a husband, you have a power that you could abuse. That power is the power of privity. Special relationship, and we'll see this in one of the occasions for for revelation. As a relative, you are assumed to know what others do not know. As a relation, if your husband, your wife, your uncle, your aunt, etc., etc. You are assumed to be of a special authority. And consequently, when you abuse this authority, your crime is so much worse. It's, it, to put it bluntly, it's so much sleazier. More, it's so much more. It, it's more sleazy when you hold this special relationship as grounds for a special knowledge, and then use this knowledge or this claim of knowledge to stab in the back, as we will see in one of the occasions of, for revelation. Furthermore. There are various theological reasons for identifying and targeting Abu Lahab, which I'll get to. Let's now move for occasions of revelation. The sources say that there are three main reports about why this verse was revealed. The first is that Abu Lahab went to the Prophet and says, what do I get, if I believe? ما أعطى in amant. The Prophet said ما يعطى المسلمون What Muslims get So Abu Lahab said ما عليهم I, I have no special status The Prophet said And what do you want? So Abu Lahab responded Saying, min deen, an akuna wa ha'ula sawa, confounded or damn this religion, I will be just like any other. And that this then brought the revelation to be. So, that basically Abu Lahab, in a nutshell, asked the Prophet if I convert, what special status do I attain? To that, the Prophet said, you're like any other Muslim. To that, Abu Lahab said, this is really a stupid religion. I'll be just equal to everyone else. The second report, for Ibn Abbas particularly, that the Prophet, والسلام, rose upon the Safa. The Safa, this is the Safa in Marwa. The two mountains, or not mountains, little plateaus, in um, in Mecca. He stood upon the Sufa, on top of the Sufa, and called upon Muslims, saying "Wa subha, Wa subha. <laughs> meaning uh, sort of like a greeting, "Good morning, good morning." It raises all types of interesting issues in itself, but anyway, for another day house good morning good morning calling them in other words giving your attention in this morning and then he said if I you if I tell you that there are horses behind this mountain there ready to invade your town would you believe me to this the people who standing around them said we would so the prophet said, well I am telling you the same. That that if fire is about to consume you, meaning hellfire, then why don't you believe me? Abu Lab, who was present, then commented. لك سائر اليوم دعوتنا إلا لهذا. Remember, the prophet starts out with saying, "Good morning" or "Blessed morning." So then, Abu Lahab responds to him by saying, "May the rest of your day be condemned." You, you you called us for this, you know. It's sort of like a, a play a play on words. Interesting play on words. You someone say good morning, and he responds to you, yeah, and the rest of your day in, in your face or something like that. N- not very polite. <laughs> you, you, you called us for nothing other than this. In other words, you're wasting our time. The third report is that Abu Lahab would know that there are people from outside of (laughs) Mecca who would seek out the Prophet having heard about him to find out what, what is the story about this man who is preaching in Mecca. And they would go to Abu Lahab and say, you are his uncle. And he would say, I know him best or alternatively that Abu Lahab would seek them out and say he is my nephew and I know him best and he would assure them that he is kazzab kazzabun that he is a lying sorcerer or more common more often he would tell them inna lam nazal min you know, we're treating him for insanity. He's insane. And we're treating him. Look at even the expression. We, we, we're, we're, we continue to treat him from his insanity. Now, here is an uncle saying this about his nephew. Now, that's quite a thing. Because the uncle is in a position of privity and special knowledge. And if the uncle is saying that we as a family are treating him from insanity, then, of course, that is a special form of betrayal because the speaker is endowed with a certain power which the speaker abuses. Three reports about occasions for revelation. In my view, there there need not be a specific report that accounts for the revelation. In fact, all of them could be the occasion for revelation. In other words, if you have a continuous set of conduct by an individual, you consider the, 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 the set of conduct, not necessarily one specific incident. But the moral here is, is the, the, the fascinating point, or the moral is here the fascinating point, is that we notice that all the occasions for revelation had emphasized really two aspects. One is Abu Lahab's abuse of position of trust and privity as a relative. Oh, we are treating him of insanity. If it's said by a stranger, if a stranger says this about the prophet, no one would believe it. But an uncle saying, yes, we're treating him for insanity, that's a betrayal. And it is the type of betrayal that is particularly effective and particularly immoral. One can generalize, and theologians have generalized from that, that it is whenever one is in a position of trust vis-a-vis another, either because of uh, blood reasons, institutional reasons, or reasons of confidence. And that when one uses that trust, either the trust generated by the victim of of the abuse, or society, the perceptions of society, the abuse of that trust is a particularly egregious sin. You notice the similarities between this and the the, the, the condemnation of the son of Nuh and the wife of Luke. Right? Here are other relations, one in the relation of the son, another is a wife who are condemned. And in fact, in the case or the father of the prophet Ibrahim, where Allah tells Ibrahim directly, even if you pray for forgiveness, you will not be. And in the case of the wife, she has been condemned and this is not from your To call this is min ahli. Ahli means my my family. He says, no, she she is not, or in the case of the son, he is not from your family. His conduct has now put him outside the purview of, of what is recognized by Islamic morality as proper family. And consequently, because of this act of betrayal, in the case of the father or the wife or the son, they are now rendered condemned. If you remember, Ruth's wife uses her position as a wife to malign her husband, a very effective position. And Nuh's son uses his position as a son to malign his father. And Ibrahim's father uses his position as a father to malign his son. That's one. Second is, note Abu Lahab's extreme sense of arrogance and entitlement. He says, what do I get if I convert? Will I get a special status? Someone like that, as a Muslim, he is as bad as he is non-Muslim. It is the sharing of the arrogance or the sharing of an attribute of of divinity or the the desire or the ambition to share an attribute of divinity. I'm not saying that everyone who, uh, and the theologians who have commented on this verse, do not claim or argue that anyone who wants to be treated special is uh, equal to Abu Lahab. But it is that person who believes himself or herself to be fundamentally entitled to a special category. They cannot see themselves as equal or at par with other human beings. Now, that person empowered with religion is as dangerous as that person is without religion. Regardless of whether they're religious or not, they cause the same degree of corruption on earth. Because everything in existence exists to service them, and it's something that, to a certain extent, all of us have a very myopic view of existence. And we, it takes quite a bit of philosophical and moral disciplining to realize that life goes on after our death. But it's a matter of degree. That type of person who basically conceives of existence as the reason for existence is their own sustenance, unable to look beyond themselves. Notice again that the occasions for revelation or reports of revelations tell us something else about Abu Lahab, another attribute of Abu Lahab or another... A characteristic of rather of Abu Lahab And that is his impoliteness as a human being. The Prophet ﷺ starts, Wa Abu Lahab responds with what? You know, good morning, and your morning may be to hell for the rest of the day, right? Or or And another report says, May you be miserable the rest of the day. That's an impolite person. Fundamentally, an impolite person. And again, the sense of arrogance and grandeur. You called me for this. My time is valuable. I come to you for this. Then we start noticing that Abu Lahab seems to have become an archetype a representational archetype for evil. Evil not in its physical sense, not in terms of someone who has kills, rapes, and and, and plunders, but in terms of its foundational ethical sense, the premises. Sort of like if I tell you who is the archetype for the seed of evil, you might say Abu Lahab. Who is the archetype for the fruit of evil? You might say Abu Jahl, you might say Hind, uh, Abu Sufyan's wife. You might say uh, the person, what's his name, Havzalah, who tortured Bilal. All of these are are fruits of evil. But Abu Lahab is an archetype. Archetype means a representational model. A representational model selected by God to teach us symbolically representationally, about something. And that is a type of person, put all the elements together, put all the reports together, and this is what emerges to you, right? Someone who is fundamentally a traitor, abuses trust, a liar, deceitful, is more than willing to lie and deceive for his purposes, abusing positions of blood and privity and and privilege and specialty. Someone who thinks he is fundamentally entitled, fundamentally exceptional, fundamentally superior to others. Someone who is self-centered and self-absorbed absolutely. And one of the things that we also know about Abu Lahab is that he would eat, by the way, he was very avaricious. Uh, He he loved food and loved drink. And for your information, his favorite drink was milk and honey. He also liked it with, with a bit of alcohol but the alcohol was optional he liked milk and honey and he would in reports we have that he would drink as much as sometimes 20 glasses of this even though if it's milk and honey i mean good stuff but still the point is that he was an avaricious human being his demeanor was one that was impolite and arrogant an archetype of an evil human being even if this human being does not produce as much evil as, let's say, Abu Jahl, but what he stands for as a representational archetypal model is extremely reprehensible as immoral value. Everyone follows? And what he stands for symbolically, representationally, is immoral value. Remember, we started off by saying that the 30th part of the Quran sets the foundations the moral values upon which everything is going to be built so as part of setting this foundation we need an archetypal symbolic representation of the human being the antithesis of which we must be in other words the human being which we must try to Remain as far away from as possible. And here you have the, the, the again, repeat because of, of its importance avaricious, consumption oriented, low life, privileged oriented, entitlement oriented, exception oriented, human arrogance oriented, impolite and rude fundamentally human being an archetype of what a human being should not be then we're struck with this expression tabbat tabbat and note here the distinction tabbat yada abi lahabi watab. give me a tra- one of the translations perish the hands of the father of rain perish he okay perish Tabbat, and we'll get into Tabbat in a second, perish his hand and perish he. Note again, Tabbat Yada, perish his hand, okay, and may he be perished too, and perished he as well. There's a distinction between Dada and Abu Lahab. You see what I'm saying? If I am going to perish his hand, well, it's understood that Abu Lahab is perished, right? So why are we being redundant here? Why are we being repetitive? Why are we saying perished his hand and perished he? Are we separating between Abu Lahab and his hand? Are they two separate existences so that we need a double perishing to cover all of Abu Lahab? The first perish is what? His acts, right? And the second perish is what? which is, you said it, the archetype, exactly. See the, the beauty of it, the meticulousness of the language. I will return to this point. Tabak means what? Means it has several meanings. I mean, it has, it's an expression. means khabat, dallat, halakat, khasirat. But in a, in, a, in a fundamental sense, condemned, lost, perished. Negated yada the hands in Arabic. When we say yada, the hand symbolizes your actions. Your hand doesn't symbolize you, it symbolizes you the product of what you do. That, that's why the Quran says, This is according to what your what your hands have done. In elsewhere, when, when Allah is talking to those who are going to, to be condemned on the hereafter, He says, this is by what your hands have done. So it's, it, this is the consequence of the, the result of your hands, what your hands have, have, have offered. Meaning, the product of your actions. But then it comes wata'b, wata'b, man wata'b, watab huwa, he, right, Watab huwa. Then we realize, and this is consistent with the occasions for revelation, is Allah wants to tell us, it is not only that his actions, are condemned, perished, doomed. But his archetype as a human being, his nafs itself, his representational symbolic stance is perished, doomed as well. This raises a very interesting point which are dealt with beautifully among Sufi interpreters of the Quran. What if Abu Lahab, had the nafs that he has, but did nothing. In other words, he had an arrogant nafs, a rude nafs, huh? nafs means self, an arrogant nafs, a rude nafs, an entitlement-oriented nafs, a, a, the, the nafs of a traitor, and, but didn't do that much evil in his life, would he still be condemned? And the Sufis say, not only yes, but he is even condemned more than someone who does more evil, but has a better soul. Because he is more rotted as a human being. And perhaps the opportunity for him to commit evil, to produce evil was not as large. But Allah knows that if the opportunity was given, he It's not that Allah condemns you for your, your intentions, But Allah condemns you for the failure to to purify yourself for existing as a representational model as a foul soul. As a foul soul. Here is what the Sufis argue is that you are not entitled to Allah's mercy. In other words, there is no reason for Allah give you special favor as you know Allah's mercy is a special favor it's not an entitlement but if you live your life thinking you are entitled to Allah's special favor that's that's an egregious commission in itself why because you are imposing upon Allah a logic that Allah has not accepted I am Allah I am entitled to your mercy and your compassion, and I have the attitude that I will get it. You will give it to me. You are superimposing yourself as a human being, as a God above God. And to that, for that, the soul itself is considered to be rotten. Then, note here, this rather amazing articulation so, the duality we understand. But it comes in and starts. Tabat. Unequivocal. Matter of fact. Condemned. It's over. Abu Lahab is alive, right? His wife is alive and she'll enter the scene in a little bit. What Allah has just told him is You, sir, you're condemned. This is an issue of very interesting debate. Does Allah tell him that? This is among the, the Ashab al-Qadr, the fatalists. Not fatalists, but the predestined, predestined school. Predestined <coughs> destiny school. Predestination school. Predestination school, which says that Allah destines you. And the free will school. And this, is, this surah, which all of us memorize and read constantly in prayer, but we never really think about how important it is. And you will find that every surah in the thirty juz we could easily spend, easily spend six hours talking about. And you will see the ilafi Quraysh is no exception, despite the fact that it's three verses. And you remember in the Al-Taynaka culture how long we spent on that. So, does Allah say this because Abu Lahab was predestined, so Allah says this because of predestination, Allah knows that Abu Lahab is going to go to hell anyway. Or does Allah say this because free will exists, but of Allah's knowledge that Abu Lahab is not going to change? And if that's the case, then what's the relation between this, Allah's knowledge, and predestination? Or is it that Allah says this because Allah has closed the doors of mercy upon Abu Lahab? See, it makes an enormous theological difference. The predestination point is obvious because it makes the difference between whether you're going to believe we are predestined to go to hell or heaven from the moment of creation or not. Thankfully, in my view, that the predestination school did not become the majority in Islam, although the Wahhabis today are, are going back to it. But in the early centuries of Islam, if you look at the early tafsir, the ones that were, that were written the first 300 years of Islam, you would find that this debate is raging. But let's take the other school that says, no, there is free will. It's just that God decided it's over. This is raises the extremely significant point, can a human being, either by causing his or her soul to rot so much or by doing so much evil, either a either product or nature, become precluded? In other words, the doors of repentance close upon them. The judgment arrives on this earth and does not have to wait till the hereafter. Which other verse of the Quran is is relevant here? Those who believe and then disbelieve, and then believe and then disbelieve. Remember this verse? And then believe and then disbelieve. They will not be forgiven. And here, by this 9th century Islamic, the majority view was, yes. A human being, it is possible for a human being to exemplify such downright moral decrepitness that judgment arrives upon them on this earth. So, let's go back. Did Allah know that Abu Lahab is not going to repent? I mean, arguably, all Abu Lahab had to do to prove the Qur'an wrong is to say, okay, i convert to Islam. Then the Qur'an has just condemned the Muslim. Right? But these theologians that I'm talking about said, no, even if he would have done that, it doesn't matter. Because Allah has said, I've had enough of you on this earth. That's it. You've done. So this raises, you know, points like, if Hajjaj would have repented after having slaughtered so many people, doesn't necessarily Allah have to accept his repentance? If as, for example, happens in some countries, you find the Shams Badrani, one of the people who tortured ten I mean hundreds of people in prison and executed and so on and then towards the end of his life became religious and would read the Quran for a good part of the day. Or someone like Hitler to bring someone that is more or etc cetera, etc. Cetera. If these people come and alter, could is it possible that no, you've done too much and it's over for you. And the judgment has arrived. A debated matter. I'm personally, to be honest with you, I am of the school that believes that judgment can arrive on this earth and in fact arrives. That there are people who do so much that that's it for them. There will be no other chance. I mean, take for example, someone who might be a child molester. Does, Does it the first time, regrets it, feels bad about it. And then says, okay, okay, Allah, I'm not, not going to do it again. And then does it again. And then says, Allah, you know, I'm, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. If, if if I don't go to prison for the rest of my life, I won't do it again. He doesn't. Then does it a third time. And then, and, and he, we keep going on like this till we reach child number 12. Is it absurd to believe that Allah says, you know, I've given you chance after chance. That's it. And surah. Uh, Al-Masad is at the heart of this debate in Islamic theology. Is at the heart. Those who insist that Abu Lab was condemned, and that if you if you don't believe in predestination, I believe. If you don't believe in predestination, you have to believe in that school that says judgment could could arrive on this earth. The thing is, though, we don't know. It's only it's in Allah's knowledge. It's in alam al ghayb. As a human being, if you ask me and say, can Hitler be forgiven or Shams Badran, I say, I don't know. But I know that it is possible for Allah to close the doors. That's what I would argue. Anyway, another fascinating issue, just in these early verses, you know, is that he's called Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab is his kunya, his his, um, surname. It is not his real name. If you notice, prophets in the Quran are called by their real names: Muhammad, Ahmed, Musa, Isa. Evil proper names are never used, but they are often not even. I mean, Frawl, for example. Who is he? What was his name? You have even even uh, uh, at the time of al aziz i mean it is it is an interesting point that the kunya is used but not the proper name and it is some have argued you no know, the reason for that is that he was known as abu, abu Lahab, so the quran used whatever he was known by some have argued which is a point of more grammar and style and, and balaga, is that this is a tasghir that in order to truly respect someone you use their proper name but if you use their kunya, it's a form of of of, of a, a a sort of a devaluation when, in a context like this, you use the kunya and not the proper name. It's as if the, their name is not important enough to be documented or remembered. Anyway, anyway, I mean, this would be considered a footnote within the first verse. The ayat al-ula ibn Abu Mas'ud. Reported in the following reading is tabbat yada waqad tab instead of But again, you know how I feel about these variant readings. Is that if it's ahad, which it is, then I don't count much on it. I would not. If someone read in prayer waqad tab, I would not correct him. I would believe that it is not a part of the Quran.